you. And good morning, everyone. Again, wonderful to be behind here. It's like getting back in your own car when you've been driving in your car. <clears throat> good to be sharing God's word with you. Um, been praying about and wondering where the Lord would have me go in terms of sermons. And I've mentioned more than once, I'm going to be spending a lot more time in the Old Testament uh, this year. And looks like he's, he's driven me back there again. So we're going to be looking at a, a very special time for the Jewish people, for Israel. And it was a time of the judges, what they call the judges. So I'm going to get you to turn to Judges chapter 13 this morning. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be examining a particular life. A life of a fellow called Samson. Yes. So we'll see what the Lord what the Lord has in store for us in the coming weeks. But looking forward to it. Judges chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Let's uh, bring these things to the Lord. Let's, uh, let's thank him for this time once again. Heavenly Father, as we approach your throne of grace this morning, we are in much need of it. Father, we pray that as we look into your word once again, we thank you so much for it. But we pray for your understanding and your wisdom. Father, that we might take that word into our lives and that it might bear fruit for your glory. Father, I pray for each and every head that is bowed down now. I pray that you would be working in their heart, that the Spirit of the Spirit of God would be moulding them and changing them, increasing their understanding and helping them to see the world and everything as you see it. So, Father, I pray this morning, as I deliver this message, that you would use me for your purposes, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Caught up with Morris at the back this morning. Looking pretty good there, Morris. You've cut your, um, you've shaved your, your, your beard nearly off. You didn't quite get there, but you're almost there. Um, and he bought it, came in with a stack of books, and they're those novels. You know, the, the novels that men don't tend to read. They're the, I asked Morris whether he'd read any of those novels, and he didn't read any of them. Um, and they're Christian novels, and, uh, but to be a good novel, to have a good novel, it has to have some twists and turns. It has to have, interesting characters in it. There has to be some sort of a plot that drives in a certain direction. And when you read the life of Samson, it makes for a very good novel. 
you see his life as a bit of a, well I see personally his life as a bit of a, you know that roll, those roller coasters you get on the, uh, in the things? He has some amazing highs, but he has also some incredible lows in his life. And the Bible tells us very clearly that everything that's written in the Old Testament and the New is for our benefit. So there are bad things that are written in the Old Testament that we can learn from so that we don't make the same mistake in our lives. And there are amazing things that happen in the Old Testament that show us what God can do through people that are yielded to him. And that's the challenge that, that, that I'm going to present to you in the coming weeks. That if you're yielded to God, if, you're, if you've submitted your life to him and you make yourself available to him and choose to live the life as he wants you to live, then he can do amazing things for you. So we're going to be looking at this fellow called Samson and we may look at some of the other judges that come up during the time of the judges. Now, I'm going to get, this sermon today will only serve as an introduction to this whole thing because I'd like you to understand the background, the setting of what's happening because it's only when you understand the context and the background that you can actually make full sense of what's going on and why someone like Samson did the things that he did. So our challenge today is for us to learn from Samson to learn from his mistakes so we don't make the same ones. But you know something? Most importantly, it's not about Samson. It's not about anyone else really in the Bible. And it's not about ourselves. This, if, I, if there's anything I want you to take away from this next uh, series, I want you to see how God deals with Samson. Because it's all about the grace of God. It's all about how wonderful and consistent and perfect and holy and loving God continually shows himself to be over and over and over again. We see this coming out in this, this time specifically. So let's have a look and see where we're at in terms of history here. So the place or the time is about 1085 B.C., so almost 1,100 years before Jesus is born. And we call it the time of the judges. So how do we get to the time of the judges and why is it called the time of the judges? Well, Moses had led the people out of Egypt through the wilderness and Moses didn't make it into the promised land. God said, you're not going to step into the promised land because of the sin that he committed as well. So the man who was given charge and the authority and the responsibility of bringing the people into the promised land after 40 years of being in the wilderness was a fellow called Joshua. Joshua had been Moses' right-hand man for many years. And Joshua had now the responsibility to help drive out all those nasty people that were living in that area because God said, I'm going to drive out all these inhabitants and I'm going to give this land to you as an inheritance forever. So Joshua had taken over the leadership of Israel upon Moses' death and by the time um, that he passed away, he conquered almost 90% of the land that, that God had promised the Israelites. But there's a problem. You see, both Moses and Joshua were very influential and powerful leaders. They were now gone. 
Israel was in its own land. The army that Joshua had commanded, which was a conglomeration of from all the different tribes and the 12 tribes, had now become disbanded. And each tribe was designated their own territory and those men went back to live with their families in their own territories. There was a fairly loose allegiance between all these different uh, families. They had inherited the tabernacle as their centre of worship. They had the the writings of Moses now that they could actually use for their civil code, so to run their whole society and the moral governance. But as I've mentioned, to shift from being under the leadership of two unbelievably charismatic and powerful and strong men of God to having no one central head and no centralised government was a challenge for them and fragmentation between these families and the infighting that happened started to, to come in fairly quickly. Now, the time of the judges lasts for about 300 years. And during that time, God gave Israel about 15 judges, possibly more, but there's about 15 recorded in the Old Testament for us. And these judges were given by God to help provide leadership when they needed it. So the Jews themselves, and I looked, I went to a Jewish website to see what their take on these judges were. And the Jews themselves write this. The Jews had no king. Okay, So this is before the time of the king. So this is after, after the, 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 uh, the wilderness and, the, and the, um, the release from Egypt. They're in, their, they're in their promised land, but there was no king. Okay, The Jews had no king, but when they needed guidance, they turned to judges who were both warriors and prophets. So these guys had a specific role to play. They were called by God at a specific time to answer a call and leadership that these people needed at various times. So Joshua, on his deathbed or at the end, toward the end of his, of his life, he made the people of Israel, he made them make a promise or a covenant. Turn back to Joshua chapter 24 verse 20. Joshua chapter 24, verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, says Joshua, then he will turn and do you hurt. And consume you. After that he hath done you good. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye are witnesses against yourselves that ye have chosen you the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel, And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. 
and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it, set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it hath heard all the words of the Lord which he spake unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, every man unto his inheritance. And it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance, in Timnath Serah, which is in Mount Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua, and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. Okay, so you get the picture there. So Joshua had spent most of his life, especially the end of it, fighting. And by the end of it, God had almost given them everything that he promised to give them. There was only a few things to take care of. They had driven out of that area... They'd driven the people out to the outward rims, okay? So there are a fair few displaced people, we might, we might call them. And Joshua said, basically he asked them for them to make a decision about what they're going to do because he already knew what was going to happen. You see, there were still elements from the, the previous people that were still floating around amongst them. They hadn't fully cleared them out. And Joshua basically says... Make sure you clear them out completely. Don't let them infiltrate your lives because if they do, you're going to turn away from God. You're going to start chasing up after other gods. So their oath as a whole nation, as a whole people, was that the Lord our God we will serve and his voice will obey. Is that clear enough? Okay. We will serve God and we will obey his voice. So then he says, all right, since you've made this declaration Yourself, between yourself and God, he puts a large stone, almost like a, it's a memorial stone. And that stone becomes a witness to all the people in Israel that that day they made that promise. It's a bit like a contract that you sign. You know, when you, when you sign an agreement, at the bottom there's signatures. So those signatures witness the fact that you agreed to that specific that, that agreement, okay? So this stone was to be a reminder to them of the agreement they made on that day. Israel had promised to worship God, to obey him forever. And the period of the judges then began. So basically, over a 300-year period, there were about 15 judges. But after Joshua's death, the enemies that had been pushed out of that specific land, started to infiltrate again. The ones that had been driven out were now banding themselves together and beginning to try to fight their way back in or to infiltrate their ways back in. And if you turn to Judges chapter 21, verse 25, this is what ends up happening during this time. This verse epitomises... What happened to Israel when their main leader was not there? 
okay, when there was no leader like Moses or Joshua. It says that in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. <clears throat> That's not a glowing indictment of them. That is not a praise. That's basically telling us that wherever they were, they were doing whatever they thought was right for them at the time, depending on their circumstances. Now, that's a dangerous place to be in. They didn't seek the Lord in all these things. They still had the, the tabernacle. They didn't have a temple. They had a tabernacle. Remember the tent that they, that they would erect and, and, and pull down when, as they moved through the desert? They still had that as their central point of worship. But you know something? We've seen this before. You know, if you have to travel a fair way to get to the actual temple or the tabernacle, um, some people might be able to offer some alternatives to that. And that's what happened as well. There were, pri there were people who were, private, who were opening up private um, sacrifice, sacrificial places. And they'd say, oh, if you pay me just a small fee, um, we'll do the sacrifice for you right near your home. You don't have to travel all the way down there and you know, run the risk of, of, uh, of getting hurt or, or whatever else it is. This is going to be a lot, more thing, a lot more easier for you. And some of the Israelites were seeing that as an advantage. God never abandoned Israel. But we find during this time that Israel abandons God over and over and over again. They each, walk, they, they each began to walk in a path that took them away from God. Now look at Judges chapter 2. Let's go back to the beginning of Judges and we see how long it takes for them to actually fall away from God. Remember they made, they made that promise at the end of Joshua, correct? Now look at chapter 2 of Judges. We're not far into the book of Judges. Chapter 2. And the children, sorry, chapter 2, verse 11. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served. Who did they serve? Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could no, not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said. And as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges. But they went whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which, way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord. But they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. 
For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. That's not a very pretty picture there, is it? Soon after, the promise they had made, to, they vowed with that stone erected, they vowed that they would obey God, that they would submit themselves to him and serve him. What do they start doing? They start serving and, and submitting themselves to the gods of the people they drove out. To the people that were on the fringes who were being driven out by God, they start following their gods. Isn't that strange? Do you think that's actually... In, in my mind, it seems a very strange thing to do, okay? But you need to understand how pervasive sin is. How easy sin gets into people's lives. How attractive it looks. The people obviously didn't keep their worship or their covenant with God. They began to worship Baal and other gods. And what happened is that God loosened his hand of protection over them. And the people whose gods they began to serve began to actually attack them. And it caused them spoilers here. It caused them spoilers because they were spoiling everything that was going on. They'd go in, they'd raid a town, they'd rob it of all its goods, and then they'd go back to where they were before. They were spoiling it. So the people were getting distressed here. But because they refused to actually worship God, God had given them up to the very gods that they were deciding to serve. So the people groaned. And the beautiful thing about this is that where the people started groaning and started crying out to God and saying, help us, help us, did God abandon them? No. The Bible says that God gave them a judge. Every time they did that, he would give them a judge and that judge would rescue them from the dilemma that they were in. But when the judge died, it says they actually went back to doing what they were doing before and worse than their fathers. So you have this situation where, let's say you have a peak up here of where they're... Um, do it the right way for you, that way or that way. Where they start, where they, they're under the, the, the leadership of uh, Joshua and they're at a spiritual high, let's say. And so after that, there's a sl there starts to be a slow decline. And as they go down, God sends them a judge, they go back up again. But then they, they fall away when the judge dies and they go down. So you have this business going on. They keep getting worse and worse and worse. But regardless of their continual backsliding and their worsening state, the Lord sends them new judges to rescue them every time. And it's in this cycle that Samson's born. Samson was the 13th of those judges that the Bible records for us. So he's coming towards the end of this whole thing. Okay, So there were 12 judges before him, and he actually is the 13th one, to be exact. So we begin with verse 1 of chapter, Judges chapter 13, and it says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. Okay, so this is the background for where 
Samson is about to be born. The Philistines had come back with a vengeance and remained the main enemy of Israel for the next hundred years. But before God was about to deliver them once again through another judge, they had already been oppressed 40 years. So it took another 60 years for those people to be pushed back. They marauded and they raided the Jewish people year after year. And in some cases, they actually forced them to pay a tribute to them. But worst of all, the worst thing is that they actually enticed the Jewish people to worship their own gods. So what's worse, to be raided and to have your goods stolen or to actually infiltrate those people that you're attacking and, and cause them to worship your own god? Well, I think I know which what the answer that is the other problem that you have here and the reason that that this is occurring is that the Jewish people Israel was actually a very primitive agricultural sort of society they didn't have chariots and horses and the latest weaponry the Philistines did the Philistines were were quite advanced with their weaponry so the Jews were looking at these guys and saying look how advanced they are it's like they had the latest stealth bombers and fighters and everything, and they were still fighting with whatever, spears and bows and arrows. So they looked at them and they became enamoured with how advanced they actually were. So they said, they said to themselves, they're so advanced, we want to be just like them. But the very people that they actually admired and looked up to were their problem and were their nemesis. The root problem was that Israel continued to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Maybe notice that that's an interesting phrase. Evil in the sight of the Lord. What does that actually mean? Does that mean that, that they did it openly during the daylight so God could actually see what they were actually doing? Maybe they did it during the daytime. Maybe they did it so, so, no, so anyone could actually see them. The problem with, with that sort of idea is that God sees in the darkness. There is nothing that's concealed from God's eyes. There is nowhere a person can go to conceal their sins because God sees it all together. There is nothing we have within our minds and within our hearts that are actually hidden from him. He sees it all. The fact of the matter is that when, when the Bible says that it was evil in the sight of the Lord, it means that he's the one who decides what's evil and what's not. It means he's the one who's the ultimate judge of right and wrong. And the Israelites fell into the very sin that they promised they would never go to. And that is chasing up after other gods. They looked at and fell into the trap of seeing other nations more prosperous, more powerful, more advanced and possibly more intelligent than they were. And they looked at themselves and they thought, oh, we're a bit backward over here. So they began to follow these other more advanced cultures. So they thought that by abandoning God, by abandoning the Lord and turning to Baal, that they would also be advanced like them. That they would also have that prosperous um, uh, life. That they'd be more powerful. That they would see themselves as more intelligent. See, Baalism was a religion that governed the way people lived from the cradle to the grave. It was worldliness in its most severe, severe form. The proponents having to sacrifice to their gods, sometimes their own children. 
to get that God to give them a bountiful crop, to make them more advanced and to give them wealth. While Jehovah was calling them to love him, to remember him and to focus on him, the love that he had for them, Baalism forced people to actually be grounded and rooted in this world. Where God says, keep your eyes focused on me in heaven. Keep your eyes and hearts in heaven. Baalism said, no, no, no. You root your, your lives to this earth and to this ground. And the, the, the blessing I'm going to give you is what's growing up out of the ground. There is a, a big difference between following Baal and worshipping Jehovah. While Jehovah was calling them to have their minds in heaven, Baal was calling them to have their lives on earth. And that's the difference between the world's religions and God. God calls us into a direct relationship with him. And that relationship is between us and the God who sits on a throne in heaven. He calls us to hold in this world very loosely because this world is fleeting and passing away. But what will endure forever is heaven and the relationship we have with him. That's why the Apostle John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Did you know that Baalism is alive and well in the 21st century? Baalism has not passed away, but is alive and well 3,000 years later. It may not be called Baalism, but we have changed its name to secularism, to pop culture, to modernism. So let me put, let me put Baalism in a modern format for you. Society says your life should be focused on accumulating as much wealth as possible, in advancing your own dreams and desires as much as possible, to experience as much happiness as possible, to build your self-esteem, to build your career, to build your success. You see where it's all rooted? In the world. Every latest fad, fashion, film is designed to enrich our lives, is designed to make us happy, to get the most out of our lives, to fit the most into them. doesn't mean that everything that that's, this world creates is bad. The problem is where your heart is. might be the problem. So people fill their lives with dreams and emotions and ever-improving ways of getting things done more quickly and being connected and trying to build who we are as people. And if you don't have the latest, we cover the latest. We work on how to gain it, lest our lives be poorer if we don't have what everyone else has. You see, this is the same problem that Israel had. They looked at the, the, the Philistines who had the latest weapons. They had the latest advancements. They, had, and they looked at that and they said, oh, look at us compared to them. And they began to covet what those people had. So while they coveted what those people had, they turned, to, they turned and looked for the source of their wealth and prosperity and advancement. And they put two and two together and they said, it must be Baal. These guys are worshipping Baal, so it must be them. Or it must be him that we need to follow. 
Where does this endless chase lead, though? Well, the richest people in history, whom we are, by the way, we are the richest people in history. There is no greater wealth spread amongst so great a number of people in the history of the world. So as the richest people in history, isn't it strange that they seem to be the most, or we seem to be the most unhappy, the most frenetic, the ones who have the less, least amount of peace in our lives? The simplicity is gone. And the assets that are meant to enrich our lives and make our lives more easier become more and more of a burden to us as we accumulate them. Unfortunately, and I'm not speaking for you, the world sacrificed themselves for that. They sacrificed their time, they sacrificed their families to obtain things, to obtain positions and careers and wealth. The God of Baal is still worshipped today. But the Lord says, and take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. There are many things that the world may deem to be fine and okay, but that which is evil in God's sight is evil. It's God who determines what is right and what is wrong. It's God who determines what is evil and what is not. And we are, if we are to be God's people and live lives that he wants us to live, then we must be very clear about the boundaries that he has set, not what the world sets. We must be clear about where those lines exist and be careful to cross over them. And be careful not to allow them to become blurred by the corruption that we find in the world. The reason that God withdrew his hand from Israel and handed them over to their captors was that they had decided that they, kept, that they allowed their captors to determine the boundaries of their own lives, to determine the worship, to determine what, what they would focus on and what they would covet and desire in their hearts. They allowed those people that God had asked them to drive out to actually determine what type of people they would be. And we need to be careful that we don't fall in the same trap. That we don't allow the things and the, the, the principles of this world to determine the type of people that we are to be. We need to determine and set our, our minds and hearts on saying, God, if it's evil in your sight, I'm going to call it evil too. If you say this is the boundary, I'm going to accept that boundary and not let the world actually change it. Because if you decide over and over again to cross a boundary because of lust in your heart for something that you're not supposed to have, you know what may happen? God may very well just leave you have it. The pattern is repeated over and over in the Old Testament where people decide and choose to actually forsake God and chase after the things of the world and other gods. God doesn't hold them back. God doesn't say, stop, I'm going to pull you back. He doesn't. He says, if you decide to go that way, I'm going to let you go that way. And I'm going to let you bear the consequence of your own decisions. So when people chose to abandon God and reject his, reject his precepts and laws, he hands them over to the overlords that they worship, the overlords they look to. 
In this case, Israel had chosen to follow the God of the Philistines. And he hands them over to the Philistines to let the Philistines deal with them. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. This is also this is also true today and true in the church. If you desire something bad enough and you choose to go that way, despite God's calling you not to go that way, he may hand you over to the overlord who has pulled you that way. There was a particular man in the church at Corinth who was involved in adultery and fornication. And look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is reported commonly, commonly, mind you, that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that hath done, that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You like that? He says if he continues to go along this path without repentance, hand him over to the God that he's chosen to serve. For what purpose? That he might be saved. He may have well been saved or he may have not been saved. But God says, hand them over to the God that they're deciding to, to chase after. And it seemed like the Corinthians actually followed Paul's advice in this one over here. They actually, the man refused to repent, so they, they actually took him out of their, um, their congregation. They took him out of membership and they said, we're handing you over to Satan. Look what happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We see a follow-up to this. Paul counsels again on the same sort of matter. Second Corinthians chapter two verse six says, "Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many." In other words, the whole church did it. Verse seven: So that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. Why is this guy sorrowing? Because he'd repented. He'd repented. He wanted to come back to church. And the Corinthians were not letting him. They said, nah, you're out, you're gone now. Whereas this fellow was swallowed, being swallowed up with sorrow... 
because he wasn't able to join the fellowship again. If you choose to follow a path that is opposite to God, he may very well let you take that path. But there are always consequences to pay. If you choose another God over the only God, then he will hand you over to that God. But he'll do it for a reason. Just as Paul counsels the Corinthians, hand them over, hand this person over for the destruction of the flesh that he may be saved, God will allow you to come under the dominion of whatever God you choose to follow, not for the purpose of, of throwing you away, but for the actual purpose of actually getting you back and teaching you a lesson. So Israel as a nation was afflicted 40 years because they had chosen a God other than the true God. So 40 years on, God was about to deliver or, or give them a deliverer called Samson. Our society is also moving rapidly away from the foundation of God's word and chasing up after other gods. It's already paying a price. Eddie mentioned that the churches, most of the churches have abandoned the, the word of God from their pulpits. They are preaching other than what comes from the word of God and they're paying the consequence of it. And as, as, as our society turns more and more away from the foundational principles that are found in the Bible, even if they don't believe, there is still principles in the Bible and God's laws that help govern a nation properly. When they reject those, God will hand that nation over to whatever God they're choosing to follow. And it's the same for our culture. We are in, as Eddie mentioned already, in a bit of a downward spiral, much like Israel was. And look at verse 2 from Judges, chapter 13. We'll just close off with these final thoughts and we'll get into this a bit more deeply later at another sermon. And there was a certain man of Zorah, the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon him, come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Does that sound familiar to you, that, that particular message? Ever heard anything like that before? Where an angel comes to a woman and says, you're going to bear a son. And that son shall deliver his people. Okay, Turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. There was another man whose birth was pre-announced by an angel who not, not only went to, the, went to the woman, but went to the man as well. And this first one, Matthew 1.20 says, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The angel then goes to Mary. and You don't have to turn there, but it says, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, 
for thou hast found favour with God. And behold, thou, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Very similar sort of message to what they gave to Manoah's wife. As you've probably already noticed and put together, Samson is a picture of Jesus that would come later on. Samson was a deliverer and saviour of his people. Admittedly, a very poor picture. Admittedly, no picture and no person that ever led up to Jesus would ever come even close to the type of saviour that he would be. But nevertheless, when we look at Samson's life, we see God working in a way to rescue his people through a deliverer, and that's what he did with Jesus. In Israel's case, in Israel's case God chose to save them from their worshipping other gods and from the terrible pain they were in by these people actually attacking them over and over again. They worshipped other gods. They idolised their own enemies. And we find in the world's case, in the whole world's case, that the world is worshipping other gods and idolising the very enemy that they have, which is the devil. They idolise him without even realising it. They idolise his philosophies, they idolise his ways, and they inadvertently follow him without even realising it, and they are continually trapped by him. So where Samson needed to save his people from that thing, from Israel from that thing, Jesus came to save the world from that very thing as well. Today, you may be sitting here and you might be crying out for something. Your life might be a misery, like the Israel's lives were, like the Israelites' lives were. You might be feeling attacked. You may feel as if there's, there's no direction. But you know what their problem was? Even though they were being attacked by the very people okay, whom they had driven out, they still idolised what they did and hunted and looked more and more for what they, the way they lived and their gods. You may be stuck in that same pattern over and over and over again in your life. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your saviour today, you are or will be forever trapped in that cycle. There is only one who can deliver you from that. There's only one who can save you and God has sent him already. He's the deliverer of every person in this world if they just choose him. If they just choose him. There is no more important decision you will ever make in your life than either choosing him or rejecting him. That will be the thing which you are judged on on the day that you die. And choosing not to accept him is choosing to reject him. Because all the while that you don't make a choice, the Bible says that you stand as an enemy of God. And the God that you serve is your own sin and the devil who is enticing you toward that. So my challenge to you today 
is that if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you haven't seen that he is the one that God has sent to save you, please choose wisely. Choose wisely. Because if you don't choose, you've made the choice already. Jesus came to save, to set us free from the sin that has been a bondage to us all these years. We're all in the same place. We're all in the same boat. There is none of us who are any better than anyone else. We all need saving. And as we look at the life of Samson in the coming weeks, I pray that you'll see how important Jesus is to us. God bless you. Thank you.